All right. Jeff's running to get the lights so you guys can see me and one another here. Uh, good morning. I'm thankful to give the opportunity to our preacher man, as Doug affectionately calls him, uh, a Sunday off. You know, Jeff works really hard to bring the Word of God to bear every single Sunday. And it's not easy. It is not easy to prepare, especially a sermon series like the Advent series we just went through. So very grateful to give him time off. Next week, Eric Goots. I think I saw Eric in the back here. There he is. Eric's going to give Jeff another Sunday off and bring another sermon to bear uh, for us. So grateful for that. So all we need to do is give Grant a Sunday off sometime here. We'll work on that, praying about it. Now, consider with me the season we're in. During this time of year, Americans, we're bombarded with this idea of newness, right? It's not just the presents or the stuff that we accumulate over Christmas. We also have the New Year's commitments, right? Now is the time to improve. Now is the time to be better. Now is the time to do what you wish you did last year, right? Now is the time you can change. But I want to ask you a different question this morning. I'm not going to ask what you want to do different. I'm not going to ask how you want to improve. Here's the question. Does what you do matter? The choices you make, the vocation you have, the classes you take, the schedule you keep, do these things matter in eternity? Now, there are many things that we pursue every single day, many choices that we make, conversations, plans, family relationships, friendships, career choices, all kinds of things. But again, let me ask, is what you're doing in all of these areas of your life, do those things matter? Do they matter unto eternity? Now, I'm not going to go all Paul Washer on everyone. And if you don't know that reference, just check out YouTube, Paul Washer, shocking message. It's great. You'll be edified. I'm not going to say that nothing you do, or should I, let me rephrase that. I'm not going to say the things you do don't matter. I'm not going to say that. But I'm going to pose the question to you to challenge your daily normal. What is your daily norm? What are the things that you do that fill your life, that fill your mind, that fill the way that you order your schedule, that fill the way that you make plans? Are those things in an eternal perspective? How does what you do matter? In what ways are you pursuing things that last? Eternal things. My assessment of our culture, of typical church culture, people often get lulled into a sense of security. Now, this is doctrines like the pea and tulip. You guys know the perseverance of the saints, right? The total security. But then they're further lulled by the nature of comforts that are afforded in our economy by our cultural expectations like family obligations, like personal preferences. And all of that can lead to Christians making life choices more about here and now instead of what will be and what is to come. I think the enemy is very crafty to devise such things because if we really stop and think about it, we know eternal things matter infinitely more. They matter eternally more than the typical things that we fill our life with. So distraction is the name of the game from the enemy and from the world. But to fight that, today's passage will be very, very applicable. So to note, you're not going to get a standard three-point sermon today. I apologize if you like that clear outline. You're not going to get it today. We're going to dig into the word. I'm just going to ask you to keep your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 2. The thing is, today, we're going to go all the way to the beginning of chapter 6. You heard me right. 
from 2 all the way to the beginning of 6. And don't look at the clock. It doesn't matter. God is sovereign over that. <laughs> but let me explain why so much scripture today, okay? <clears throat> First, context is key all too often. We just want to get to the point. We want to get the main thing, right? We want to give us the proof text. Many of us have adopted this I generation mindset. It's regardless of age. It doesn't matter your age in this. It's the streaming generation, the generation of smartphones and instant gratification, right? Our culture promotes this immediacy, and we come to expect it even in our sermons. But that's not how it's supposed to be. Think of the best stories. The best stories you know have buildup. They have conflict. They have multiple angles, right? And that's all before any sense of resolution. And we need to know the story before we know the application. We need to know the history before the principle. So without a knowledge of Paul's very complex relationship with this church here in Corinth, much of this letter is very difficult to understand because you're only reading one side of the story. You might even be prone to think that Paul was unnecessarily harsh, which he definitely was not with that church in Corinth. Now, second, just like an excellent main course, foodies, right? or a profound dessert, less is more. Less truly is more. When you bite into something rich, so packed full of flavor, you honestly can't handle a ton of it. You, know, you can have too much of a good thing. That is true. So there's no need to go extra. One bite of something that is incredible should be more enjoyable than something plain. But you still need the plain stuff to fill you up, right? You're not filled up by that one bite of something incredible. You need the vegetables, the starches, all the rest of things that comprise the meal, but this is a one-off sermon. I don't have the luxury of building up over weeks. So you're, you're just getting it all at once. It is what it is. That's why you don't have three points. It's just kind of serving you the whole meal, and you're just going to sift through it as we work through. So as we work through a, a large portion of Scripture today, here's my challenge to you. Think about what really matters in your daily life. Think about what matters in your commitments, your responsibilities, your decisions, Consider how to infuse eternal goals, how to pursue eternal things in and through the normal actions and the interactions in your life. You're going to see from Paul's life and example today, we are privileged to be part of God's incredible redemption plan. And there is a future impact of all that we do as believers, and that should shape how we live on this earth. So with all that being said, let me pray for us. We need it today for sure. And God, uh, God's spirit will surely enlighten our hearts and minds today as we dig in. Let's pray. Lord God, we're grateful. We're grateful this morning that we get to gather together. There is no randomness to the presence of everyone here in this room. So we're grateful that you are a God of order, that everyone here is appointed to hear your word proclaimed today. We thank you for the grace that you have displayed to us through Christ, of which, yes, we celebrate him more so this season, but as Christians... We celebrate Christ all year, every day, because we know that he truly is Emmanuel, God with us. We thank you for your word and the instruction that it provides. May our time together today be useful and profitable for our own edification, our own growth and sanctification, we pray. Amen. Now, I'm normally not a slides person, but I worked really hard for you all to get some slides. Oh. I can't use this clicker, though. There it is. Maybe I'll just let you get me, Kenny. All right. So I had to give you a background on Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church, and it is complex. So let's run through here. This is the briefest, by the way, explanation that I could give. Eight points. Whew. We'll go through pretty quick here. 
So first off, Paul goes to Corinth for the first time during his second missionary journey. Sorry, Jeff, no time for maps today, all right? I know, there's just no time. He starts his relationship during his second missionary journey. He establishes the church. Then he leaves after he establishes it. Then he hears of immoral behavior through those who are passing through the church in Corinth. And he wrote what we call the lost letter. It's referenced there. You can look it up at another time. After that, there's further trouble in the church. And the church even writes Paul a letter. And so Paul responds with what we call 1 Corinthians. Now, technically, that's not the first letter. But what we call 1 Corinthians because we don't have that first letter. Now, difficulties continued and false apostles rose up within the church. And one of the main things they promoted was this idea of prosperity and health and wealth. It's one of the main things that they promoted. They diminished suffering and they sought to delegitimize Paul and every other apostle gospel worker of his day. So Paul was in Ephesus and he dropped what he was doing to visit Corinth because he heard about all this. And it was a very painful visit. Second time he was there, very painful visit. He was openly insulted by a church member and then he wasn't even defended within the church. So then Paul returned to Ephesus again. So after he visited, painful visit, comes back to Ephesus, and he decides to give the church more time just to come to their senses, to wake up and to repent. Now, while at Ephesus, Paul wrote another letter. So we're on, if you're tracking now, we're on 3 Corinthians, okay? He wrote the severe letter. He wrote a very harsh letter to the church, and he sent it via Titus. That letter we also don't have, so that's why we don't call it 3 Corinthians or anything like that. But he wrote this severe letter to rebuke the church for their open rebellion against the authority of the apostles and the gospel workers of the day because instead they were following these false teachers. So if you're following along here, we should be on point seven, right? So out of his desire to hear how they received the letter, Paul gets up, he leaves Ephesus, and he meets Timothy somewhere in the middle. He goes to him because he wants to find out, how did they receive my severe letter? How did they receive it? Did they repent? Did they turn? Are they still hard of heart? But he loves them so much that he goes, he goes to visit with Titus just to see how they responded. He hears a good report that a majority of the church repented and that they turned. So Paul hears of this, and he's still mindful that there's a little minority left in the church that is still divisive. Those false teachers haven't all left. And so then Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, which is where we are today in the timeline. So Paul ended up visiting Corinth a third time after writing this letter. Uh, he visited a third time, and we infer that based on the end of Romans, uh, which all of you remember very clearly because we spent like three years in it, right? He wrote, uh, in, he probably wrote Romans from Corinth is what we understand, as well as uh, there's participation in the offering that the church at Corinth had for the saints in Jerusalem. Now, to summarize all this, based on what we know, Paul visited Corinth at least three times. He wrote four letters, of which we have two, and he had a whole lot of heartache, a whole lot of heartache due to necessary confrontation and then repentance that followed multiple times, multiple times with the church, a lot of instruction and a lot of heartache. So today, we are the recipients of not only a lot of practical doctrinal teaching because the church had questions and he answered questions that are very applicable to today, but we're also the beneficiaries of understanding the difficulties and the reality of ministry, of gospel relationships in the church. It's not all clean. It's not all just smiles and waves. It is painful. It is difficult. And it requires a level of effort that exceeds that of just passivity. 
So let me pause for a moment. We need to acknowledge this, that when it comes to the Corinthian church, Paul pursued what mattered. Paul pursued what mattered. He cared for that church, and it was not an easy task. It took years. It was full of hardship and pain. And you're going to see throughout this passage how Paul's basis for ordering his life, it wasn't on the temporary things of faith. It was on eternal things that matter, eternal things that last. Now, with all of that, you can look at your text now. I'm actually going to give you a brief uh, context of chapters 1 and 2. I might even have some notes on that. Ready? Ah, there it is. These are just some brief, uh, the headlines, if you will, of chapters 1 and 2, 1 Corinthians. So to note here, Paul greets the church. He offered some words of encouragement, sharing in suffering and the difficulties that are faced in ministry. Uh, And ultimately, the difficulties helped Paul and his contemporaries to trust God more. Difficulties aren't bad. Paul also explained that he didn't visit as he planned because he had told them he was going to visit in that severe letter, more than likely, is what we infer. He didn't visit because they just needed more time to reflect. They had been hard of heart. They were a hot mess. And so he takes time to say, yeah, I didn't come, but it was for your benefit. It was for your good because y'all are drama. It's what I imagine he would say today if he had our lingo. Now, in the first part of chapter 2, Paul instructs the church to be gentle, to forgive a man that is repentant. That's likely the the offender in 1 Corinthians 5. We're not going to get too deep into that, but there was an unrepentant man in 1 Corinthians in that letter. And this is likely that man, and Paul encourages them to, to forgive him and to be gentle with him. And then he comments about the disunity that Satan pursues within the church. And we should be mindful, Satan schemes, uh, Satan schemes against believers. Satan doesn't just scheme against and with unbelievers, but pursues the darkening of the mind and the blinding even. Of believers. <clears throat> and so the surefire way against Satan and his schemes is to practice the one another's, and that includes forgiveness. And Paul talks about opening up ministry opportunities because he was, remember, he went to go visit Timothy on his way to hear how they received the letter. So he just says, hey, God was gracious. He even gave me ministry opportunities when I changed my plans. I had different plans, but God gave me many ministry opportunities in this. So that's a, play, that's a praise. Then he talks about this triumphal entry. I mean, there's so much here. There's so rich. You could talk you do sermons on this, watch Gladiator, you understand this triumphal entry a little bit more. But it's an analogy of a Roman ceremony, a victorious general returns to Rome from war. And the, the comparison here is that Christ is that victorious general. The Caesar is God the Father. We are the fragrant aroma. They burn perfume and incense all around the city to let everyone know that the general is coming back uh, and that he was victorious. So the overall picture here is that Christ is our victorious general who leads us through all battles but also that we are this fragrant aroma to the, to the perishing, to the dying, and to the living. And we remind people who are dying that, hey, there's life. And we remind people who are living, hey, there's life. Both ways we remind people. Now, the last part that Paul gives here in chapter 2 is that he and his co-laborers are commissioned by God. This is very key because if you remember in part of the drama, there was those false teachers that were trying to delegitimize Paul. So Paul had to come out in his defense and say, look, I'm sent by God. We're sent by God. We're not sent by man. So this is key, and it's going to feed into this next section here that we dig into, because Paul refutes the accusations of the false teachers, and he says, look, we're legitimate. We're legitimate authorities. He doesn't even, he doesn't even come out and attack the other ones, but he just says we're sent by God, we're commissioned by him. Paul speaks, though, of those peddlers. Uh, certain versions of your Bible might have peddlers, or you might have those who market the word for profit, different things like that. 
what he's referring to is these false teachers, they're offering a fake gospel and they're just trying to be clever. They're trying to be, you know, funny and all this, uh, you know, words to make them sound great. But it's not a fruit of the spirit. Cleverness is not a fruit of the spirit. It's not a qualification for eldership, thinking of quippy things to say. Paul contrasts that wicked motive that's just for personal gain. You know, he even referenced a charging people for their gospel presentations. And Paul came to them not charging them. Paul came on behalf of other churches. You read it later in this letter. The other churches supported Paul's ministry to them. By the way, Paul's not against people getting paid to do ministry, but he points this out to them, that these people were just getting rich. They were getting rich off of their fake ministry to the Corinthian church, and that wasn't right. So Paul contrasts their wicked motive and the genuineness of himself. Now, move into chapter 3 here. I know I'm not reading this yet. We'll start reading when we get to chapter 4. It's just too much. We can't read it all. The big picture in chapter 3, there's two major themes. Thank you, Kenny. So the first one. First one is to explain the credibility of Paul and his contemporaries. So he offers more explanation. The second theme here is to contrast the old covenant law with the new covenant in Christ. So and first thing, in addressing his own credibility... Paul makes a comparison in letters of ink and stone versus letters of the heart. See, these false teachers, they came with letters. They said, look, we're legitimate. You know, you think about it today, it's like we got degrees. We went to this school, went to that school. We got degrees. We got this endorsement over here. I got this book deal over here. Gospel Coalition published me. I'm not throwing them under the bus. I'm just throwing that out there. <clears throat> they came with the, this idea that they were legitimate because of, because of others. Paul says, look, that's not how it is. Legitimacy is not based in stone or in ink, which that he references the Ten Commandments, which is wild. But he says the legitimacy of ministry, the evidence of faithfulness, the evidence of his authority even, is based on the changed lives of the people in the church at Corinth. It's based on the changed lives. He says our letter is written on the heart. Your changed life is the evidence of our accomplishments, if you will, in the gospel because it can be seen. Now, when he compares the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, he makes some big statements. He says the Old, Test the Old Covenant law could only produce death. It just pointed out sin, and it didn't offer life. That's a true statement. He says the Old Covenant, uh, or the New Covenant in Christ, is exceedingly more glorious than the Old One because the New Covenant offers life instead of condemnation. Nobody could keep the Old Covenant. Nobody could maintain perfection except for Christ. So he says this New Covenant is so much better so don't get trapped with rules. And part of the issue is those false teachers were also throwing up fake rules for people to follow. So not only did they pursue selfish gain, but they also gave fake rules for people and tried to put them under a yoke of slavery again. Now, <clears throat> the veil reference that's used here is to show that God is sovereign over both belief and unbelief. God's sovereign over both. And he holds the ability to spiritually blind and open eyes, to veil or to unveil according to his will. And this veil reference also serves to show that old covenant was inferior to the new covenant. Because in that old covenant, Moses had to hide his face because of the glory of God. The new covenant, what he says is, we are now being transformed from glory to glory and people behold that. It's not hidden anymore. It's not behind a veil. So this new covenant is vastly superior to that old one. Now we're gonna dig into chapter four. I'm actually gonna read some scripture here. So turn in, your, and turn in your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. It says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, because we were shown mercy, we don't give up. Instead, we've renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God. 
but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. But if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we're not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as servants for your sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, here's a brief summary of these verses here. You're, you see that Paul's motivation, the motivation of these other gospel workers, the motivation in ministry, it's founded upon the grace and mercy that they've received in Christ. They pursue what matters most because God has shown them what matters most. Now, in terms of not losing heart, Paul affirms that, hey, when attacks come, even from inside the church, when his character is maligned, when people are stubborn to receive the good news, when they're stubborn to repent and to change, <clears throat> he recognizes the sovereignty of God is in all things, even in those. And God has chosen him to bring forth the gospel, and the God decides whose veil is removed and whose veil remains. Paul doesn't make life choices based upon comfort or ease. He recognizes that what matters most is the eternal state of people, genuine renewal by the Spirit of the Lord. That's what matters most. Because people perish without the gospel. Therefore, because of the mercy shown to believers like himself, Paul affirms the pursuit of gospel ministry on behalf of others for the glory of Jesus. These disgraceful and shameful things that Paul mentions, there's two things probably in view. The first is just he's telling the false, the false teachers, look, I'm not doing anything secret and underhanded. That was an accusation they gave. was that he was all holy on the front, but then behind closed doors he was a wicked man. It's like, no, that's not the truth. The second thing, he throws it back at them, and he says, look, you're the one selling illegitimate products. You're the one that's giving a counterfeit gospel. You're not giving the truth. He makes it more clear to the Corinthians here that genuine teachers of the gospel, they don't mess with God's word. They don't mess around and seek to be crafty like the devil. Instead, genuine gospel teachers, they bring the word of God plainly to people. Here's what's in mind. There's no hidden meaning. There's no hidden meaning of the text, no secret understanding that can be attained or no hidden message that's available to some but not available to all. True gospel teachers, they don't dilute the gospel message. They don't charge or change the message for personal gain. They recognize that the faith has been given to all the saints. It's been handed down, not just to some. You'll see another reference in verse 3 to the veil. And that is connected with the veil that we saw in chapter 3. And you'll note here that there's, there's additional adage here that the God of this age is blinding by the God of this age. And that can be Satan. It can also be worldly system belief. Now, Satan has no authority to prevent any from receiving grace and, and mercy, but he does work tirelessly to blind. He works tirelessly to limit the proclamation and the instruction of the gospel. Of that, we are sure. And Paul also notes here that natural man in this world without any gospel influence they're undoubtedly going to be blind to the gospel. Just read Romans 1 through 3 for that. So natural man needs gospel bringers, or what Spurgeon called gospelizers, to shine the light of Christ. Now, verse 5, you'll again see Paul making the difference between genuine and false teachers. He says genuine teachers promote the gospel, while false teachers just personal gain. That's all they're out for. And we need to be careful here to see how this dangerous disposition may actually be in our church today. We look at this and we think, oh, it's just Paul's day, those false teachers. Think for a moment here. 
Not only are there many false teachers today, there are, but this can also be the disposition of regular believers, what we would call regular believers, in the church when they're not focused on what matters most, when they're not focused on the ministry of renewal and the reconciliation that God has given. Think about this. There can be people in the church. They're not necessarily a teacher of the word, but they have a similar disposition of promoting self, of talking about theological things without serving others, not willing to work through serious issues like Paul was, like he did with the Corinthians, those who caused disunity due to their thoughts and beliefs, which they perceive to be great in and of themselves, but doesn't draw the body of Christ together. We have to be cautioned here to be more like Paul, serving others for their good and on behalf of Christ. We can't be lulled into a self-focused ministry that pursues selfish gain. That's true across all times, and that's not just in Paul's day. Now, verse 6 is an encouragement. The same God who commanded the light to come forth in creation, Genesis 1. That's the same God who's illuminated the heart of the believer to know Christ, to know Christ as Lord, as the promised Messiah and Redeemer. So God's the light giver. We can say that. He gives light in creation. He gives light in new creation, right? God is the light giver and the one who commands the light. That's a wonderful encouragement. Now, follow along as I read verses 7 through 18. Now, we have this treasure in jars of clay. How many of you listened to jars of clay growing up? Oh, there's a few. Okay, I'm not alone. So that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith in keeping with what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe, and therefore speak. For we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, everything is for your benefit. So that as grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. All right, we're, we're almost done here, kind of. Still a lot of scripture to go, but <clears throat> here, this is a passage many people are very familiar with, or they've studied, or they've heard sermons on, jars of clay, right? Paul made it clear here, he and his contemporaries, they didn't appear to be anything special. There are these clay jars, and you can read commentary, you know, simple Bible study ones about what jars were used for and all of that. But here's the thing, they weren't fancy. These clay jars weren't fancy. They weren't much to behold. They weren't that special. But don't be fooled. What they had in them was far greater than anything those pompous false teachers claimed to have. The treasure in clay jars, contextually here, refers to the fragility of humans. Now looking at verse 8, we see that the apostles, the gospel workers of Paul's day, they weren't great in any way. They were broken down. They were beat down. They weren't destroyed. But man, they were just made low, weren't they? And this was God's wisdom to show that the power to redeem, the power to renew, the power to bring life from death, that's God's power. 
Now, as we are on the heels of our Advent series, don't miss the work of the heel striker here. That wasn't intended to be <coughs> a pun because that wasn't written here. Yeah, I just did it, so if you caught it, good job. Satan hates the one who's going to crush his head. He hates him. He will take any opportunity to try and wound the snake crusher, the one who saves the seed of the woman. Brokenness and suffering, those are marks of genuine belief and obedience, especially for those initial gospel bringers. So those who hated Jesus, those who refused to affirm Jesus as Messiah, they took out their anger and hatred on those who represented Jesus. So yes, the weakness of the clay jar is visible, but the power of what's inside, the power of God, that's made evident by the weakness of the vessel. Break the vessel and you see the power inside. The suffering that Paul and his contemporaries endured, that was a mark of authenticity. That was a mark of being genuine. They trusted Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ carried them through all their trials and tribulations. Now to be clear today, you're not called to the same ministry as Paul. This is not a, a prescriptive text telling you what to expect. But in Philippians 3, Paul does say that the Christian experience is one of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And that suffering is foundational for sharing the blessings of Christ. Dwell upon that. So we shouldn't be afraid of such a life. Being saved is more than being comfortable. Being saved is more than having a secure kingdom on this earth. If we're pursuing things that really matter then there's going to be a sense in which we need to be weak and fragile so that we can display God's power. So we can say, you don't need to look for suffering. You don't need to beg for it to happen. But if you're pursuing what really matters, there's going to be some gospel suffering accompanying such faithfulness. Now, according to verse 12, it was the ministry of those early uh, gospel workers to face death. And that was in order that genuine life would be produced in their proclamation and their instruction of the gospel message. That was their, their mission. That was their vocation. In verse 13, Paul quotes Psalm 116, the big idea, genuine faith comes with genuine action. Believing to speaking, right? Believing leads to action. Speaking is action. It's doing. The basis of this conviction, according to verse 14, it's, it's not just the, the present life of Jesus you know, displayed through salvation and, and regeneration in the person, but it's the hope, the hope of future glory. The hope of future glory leads a person to say, I believe and I'm going to do something about it. I'm not just going to believe and hold it and hide it. And notice here, it's a corporate hope. He says us multiple times here. It's not a, just a personal hope of, oh, God's just going to save me. God's bigger than that. The whole bride of Christ is going to be resurrected unto glory. Not just one person. Not just you. So as he continues in verse 15, Paul says, the genuine authenticity of his ministry, the ministry of his contemporaries, it's found in their conviction and faith that all the saved, not just, not just some, all the saved are going to be brought to glory and all the saved are going to give God the praise that he deserves. It's because faith must turn into action. Now, as we continue, verses 16 through 18 here, in light of all this, and the slander from the teachers in Corinth, and the difficulties and the trials and tribulations that Paul and the other gospel workers faced, in light of the, their own renewal and their own hearts, and the excitement that they had to bring this message of reconciliation and renewal to people, in light of all that, Paul says, look, we just don't lose heart. We're not, we don't get discouraged to the point that we give up. It doesn't happen. And he, he says this again. He actually said at the beginning of this chapter as well. 
But he's, he's saying, look, we're not deterred by these constant difficulties. We're not seeking an easy life. We're not seeking comfort. He bears up in Christ and by Christ to endure all the troubles that come along with pursuing what matters. He recognizes his, this physical body, it's aging and decaying. The extra burdens he's faced surely are, are speeding up that process, right? But in echoing verse 1, Paul has all of the negative circumstances in his life in view, and yet none of them, none of the trials, none of the difficulties deter him or his fellow gospel workers from faithfully serving people on behalf of God because he knows what matters. The reason they can be so bold in the face of opposition, tribulation, it's because they're being renewed day by day by the Spirit of God. And that's through the instruction of the word. That renewal, it carries an indication that it's not something they started. God started the renewal process. We also know that God sustains the renewal process. But you're going to see this even more in chapter 5. How we spend our time here on earth, how we choose to order our life, that does impact the intensity and the quality of that process of renewal. Even some of the results. Now because of the truth in verse 16, they recognize in verse 17, this life is indeed temporary. The affliction of this age is momentary, it's light, it's not even worthy to be considered. It's not that much. It doesn't in any way compare to the eternal weight of glory. And that phrase right there is a sermon I would love to do over like five weeks. Just that phrase. The eternal weight of glory. There's so much packed in to those words there. But it's this. These gospel workers, they recognize it's not with the eyes that a person sees eternal glory. It's not with your eyes. If you just focus on in your eyes and what's physical and what's tangible in front of you, you're going to miss all the unseen eternal things of God. You're going to miss them. Believers can't be lulled into looking just at physical things, human accomplishments, health and wealth. That's in view here because of the false teachers in Corinth. Instead, they need to look to the, the spiritual things, to changed hearts, change life direction from serving self to serving God and others. We should look for holy and eternal things. All right, now we're getting close here. Verses uh, 1 through 10 of chapter 5. Follow along as I read. For we know if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling, since when we've taken it off, we won't be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. So we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. In fact, we're confident and we would prefer to be taken away from the body and at home with the Lord. Therefore, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Whew, okay, so there are some statements here that we can get really lost in the weeds on, but we're not going to today because we just don't have the time and you can read commentaries and other things for that. So I'm just going to give you the summary here. These, the first five verses, we're talking about the believer's hope in the resurrection the eternal weight of glory hope that Paul is not about what is earthly and temporary here, that he is about what is to come. He's encouraging the believers at Corinth to think likewise. It is a good thing to groan in the temporary body and to long for glory. That is a good thing. It is a good thing to long to be with the Lord and to not long to be here. 
That doesn't mean you try to get out of here, but you should long to be with the Lord. That's a good thing. Now, there's a naked comment in here. That is a, just a bad translation. It is the word in Greek, but it's not the sense. That's a difficult thing. It's not the sense. What it is is this idea of being disembodied, or some of you may be familiar with that, like being spiritually absent from the body. Like think of nirvana, something like that. The false teachers were promoting that too over there in Corinth. And so Paul's speaking against it going, look, we're not going to be naked. Like there's this intermediary state some of you may have heard about when you die, but you don't have your glorified body yet. Paul's saying, look, even in that, you're going to be with Christ. Even in that, you're going to be with Christ. You're not going to be left alone. You're going to be left outside of his grace or his protection or his glory. You're just going to look a little different until you get that glorified body. So don't, don't stress. Don't worry. Now, something to note here, all throughout Paul's multiple letters, believers who are living are in Christ. Believers who are dead are with Christ. That's a helpful distinction right there, in and with. Now, even in that intermediary state that some may call that, the believers died, they haven't received their glorified body yet, they are not absent from the presence of Christ. And so these false teachers, they're promoting like that is a better state, like it's better to be in this weird spiritual limbo than uh, to be in the body or or not. They're crazy people. Anyways, you can read a lot more of that, and there's connection with Judaizers and all kinds of things. You can get super nerdy on it. <clears throat> Anyways, the whole point of all of it is to illustrate and help instruct the believer that the eternal state is what we seek. We're not just longing to get through this life. We're not just longing to get to that state before glory. We're longing for glory. That's what we're longing for. That's what the believer should long for. The encouragement Paul gives is even when we pass from this earth, we're going to be with the Lord. So even if you don't get your glorified body yet, it's on its way. So you don't have to worry. Now in verse 7, Paul brings to, to bear this idea of sight again. He's used it multiple times already. He encourages those believers at Corn not to focus on earthly things, walk by faith, and put faith into action. The desire to be away from the body and a home with the Lord, that's referenced also in Philippians 1, 21 through 23. Some of you are familiar with that. To be with the Lord is to truly be at home. That's a good desire. That's a good thing. Whether we're with the Lord or whether we're here, we make it our aim to please him. Either way. Now, verse 10 is where things get interesting. We hear of the judgment seat of Christ. Some get troubled by this. We shouldn't be troubled. In fact, this teaching plays a significant role in determining the question of the day. What matters most? What matters most? Now, the judgment seat or the bema seat of Christ is a reference to a future time. All believers are going to go before the Lord and unfold their whole lives. And they're going to be judged for eternal rewards. Now, once a believer is saved, once they're being renewed, once their life has a different aim and purpose, really they're restored to their initial God-given purpose. Everything you do in this body after you're saved and before you die is going to be judged. Everything subsequent to salvation up until the day that you die is going to be judged. Now, note this. Christ has already paid for all sin. So that judgment is not to determine sin or in any way regarding sin. That judgment is about your works, your deeds, your actions, the choices you made after conversion. What did you do to serve the kingdom and eternal purposes? What did you do that mattered? What did you do that didn't matter? Now, when Paul speaks of good and evil here, he isn't speaking of righteousness versus sin, but rather of what is worthy and what is unworthy? It's an Old Testament concept here. What is lasting versus unlasting? What promotes the kingdom of God? And what's useless? What matters? What doesn't matter? So the encouragement Paul gives in verse 10, 
don't waste salvation on frivolous things that don't last. You're still believers that are going to go before the Bema seat of Christ. If you waste your life on things that don't last, that don't procure eternal rewards, it just seems so frivolous to obtain salvation. To just get salvation and just live this very wasteful, unhelpful, useless life. So Paul says, pursue what lasts into eternal glory. We know what lasts. It, it's not a hidden meaning either here in the, in, the, in the text. Some people get confused. They're like, oh, I don't know what lasts. Paul tells us, faith. Faith lasts. The faith of others lasts. Salvation, changed lives. The work of ministry done by any and all believers, not just by a clergy or a pastor, is the faithful service of bringing the gospel to bear on all people. Now, according to Paul in Philippians 4.1, those that you minister to are your joy and your crown. And in fact, we have a very reference right here in the text about that. Because the Bema seat was a reference to athletes winning a crown. They would go before the magistrate in that area, and they would stand up on a podium, and they receive a crown. The Corinthians would have been very familiar with that because they established the precursor to the Olympic Games, the Isthmian Games. That crown of glory is not just life with Christ, though that would be more than enough for any person. Life with Christ. Think about the thief on the cross. Man, life with Christ is more than enough. But what if the thief did, didn't, didn't die right then and kept living for another 20 or 30 years? Well, then he shouldn't waste his life. He shouldn't waste his life living as if he isn't saved. In addition to life eternal, believers are granted the added blessing of adding to their reward by the work they do in this life. And it's not by merit that anyone is saved, but there is a blessing in putting faith to work subsequent to salvation. And that is what is referenced right here. The evidence of such crowns, Paul stated all the way back in chapter 3, it's the changed lives of those ministered to by himself and by his contemporaries. That is the reward and the treasure that lives on. Now, Paul's implicit encouragement here is to remember you have freedom. You have freedom to work or not to work towards eternal treasure. But he says, don't waste it. Don't waste your freedom on things that don't matter unto eternity. Now we get our last part of this morning here. Verses 11 through the beginning of chapter 6 here. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your consciences. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in outward appearance rather than in the heart. For if we're out of our mind, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. From now on, then, we, we don't know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet we now no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. 
He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, we also appeal to you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at an acceptable time I listened to you, and the day of salvation I helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. So our last part here this morning. So because of the judgment seat of Christ, because of the rewards offered by Christ, Paul and his fellow gospel workers, they work to persuade others. He's not hiding it. See, we are. We are trying to persuade. That idea of persuading, yeah, it carries with it a sense of discipleship, carries with it a sense of evangelism, but really I like Spurgeon's idea that it's gospelizing a person to convince them of the truth of God's word, to build trust, to encourage faith, and to encourage a response of faithfulness in their life, to help others believe rightly and then be convicted to act rightly. That's what's in view here, to persuade others. In verse 12, Paul says they aren't commending themselves again. He's going back to chapter 3. Right? He doesn't need commendation letters anymore. But he's saying, here are the words, here are the phrases, here's the truth to combat the lies that those false teachers are trying to bring. You know us, you know what we're about, here's what you say. Here's how you respond. Now in verse 13, the phrase out of our minds or besides ourselves, it does literally mean to be insane or to be a fanatic. And Paul was probably accused by being, of being insane and being a fanatic. He says, you're right. For God, you're right. But is, is that a bad thing? It is not a bad thing to be a fanatic about God, is it? It is not at all. So he says, you're right, I am a fanatic. We are fanatics about God. But when we deal with you, when we speak to you, church, we're in our right mind. We're sensible. We're reasonable. We're decent when we interact with you and we minister in the church. They don't lose their heads. Even when the Corinthians have been acting foolish and disobedient for years, they don't lose their minds. Verse 14, Paul speaks of the love of Christ compelling or controlling. And really, it has this idea of, of being held together, really squeezed together, restrained for action. And the best way that my mind can think of this is, you know, like a pastry worker throws a bunch of icing in a bag and then squeezes it out to look all pretty, you know, and they're like designing a cake or something like that. That is really the sense in which Christ's love compels us. He gathers all of our crazy ideas about ministry and loving others, and he brings them together so that we're focused. And so really, God, by the love of Christ, brings all of our efforts together so that we can be focused in loving others in ministry. So the love of Christ is not just the motivation, but it's a focusing beam so that we're not distracted by pursuing the other things that don't matter. Now, an easier understanding at the end of verses 14 and 15, Christ died for all who died in him. It's kind of a confusing sentence structure in the Greek, and so translated is difficult, but it's, it's this. All who have died to their old selves, Christ died for them. So that's Jews, Gentiles, to the nations. All those who died to sin in Christ receive the blessing of Christ's atonement and sacrifice. No distinction. So the new goal for believers, for those who are renewed by his grace, is to live for Christ and no longer for themselves because we know better. We know what lies ahead in eternity and we know what is perishable and what treasure is imperishable. So the critical text of this morning lies in the next few verses. Remember what I said about a good meal or an excellent dessert? You can have too much of a good thing. All the buildup is necessary as we get here. Verse 16, Paul speaks about no longer knowing anyone according to the world or to the flesh. 
It's another dig at those false teachers at Corinth who utilized a worldly standard for greatness and authority, how they appeared wealthy and healthy. Paul says that we even once regarded Christ according to the flesh. Think about this. Isn't that true of all of us? Christ was a fairy tale for those of us children who grew up being gospelized. Before we were saved, it was a fairy tale. And for those who were saved as adults and, and gospelized as adults, before that, he was either a liar or a lunatic for you. He wasn't Lord. Some of you know where that comes from, liar, lunatic, or Lord. But that's what it was. Before we were saved, we didn't know Christ from a spiritual perspective. We knew him from a worldly perspective, and even Paul did the same. But now we know Christ through a personal and ongoing experience because the living God of eternity past, the one who made light shine out of darkness in creation, has now shown his light on your heart to illuminate you to understand the holy scriptures and to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, all by his immense grace, his glory, and his mercy. So we get to verse 17. If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. They're regenerated. They're renewed. Those in Christ have, by the nature of Christ, become justified and reconciled with the holy God. And that's what matters most. That is what matters most. New creations. And Paul's emphatic here. In the original language, in the Greek, he's emphatic because this is the most exciting news. Now, it doesn't mean that a person is done sinning. It doesn't mean that they're, they're done with that old sin nature completely, but they've been renewed. Their direction in life has completely changed from pursuing death to pursuing life. And again, in verse 18, we're reminded the whole process of conversion, reconciliation of sinners to a holy God, all of that is from God himself. So incredibly, even though sinners deserve to have their sins counted against them, God doesn't leave us condemned. And not only does God will the world to be reconciled to himself, but then he uses those that he reconciles to pass on the message of reconciliation. Now we need to know not everyone's going to be saved. Not everything will be saved. The world here, it's emphatic of sinful humanity. Sins are counted against those who do not repent. Sin has to be accounted for. So those who refuse to acknowledge Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as Lord, Jesus as Christ, Jesus as Emmanuel, their sins are counted against him. Only, only those who repent, only those who believe in Christ as Lord receive that effectual offer of reconciliation through Christ's sacrifice. So in light of all this, verse 20 states that believers are ambassadors, representatives. J. Matt gets in hot water here with some people because he talks about the word ambassador and the root word. Presbyteros is part of the root word, which means elder. All it means, it's somebody that takes charge. The ambassador steps up. They take precedence. They step in and bring forth the king's message. So the only way that others can be reconciled to God is through the work of ambassadors. Now that work started with God, initiated by God, sustained by God, and yet God uses us. That's crazy. Now the end of verse 20, it seems to be directed at the Corinthian church. If you're reading the ESV, the NAS is my only dig today, Jeff, my only dig. And I'm only putting forward of the CSB. Uh, it is a general call to all, all unbelievers, though. It's not just a specific call to the Corinthian church to repent because he's talking to mostly believers here uh, in terms of the letter. So best you understand is that this is the, the rally call, okay? When Paul says we urge you, you know, to, uh, to turn and to repent, it's a rally call, okay? Accept it as, look, Christ is the one who enables a person to be reconciled to God. So he continues that thought in verse 21. 
God caused it. God brought it about. The sacrifice of the sinless Christ for the reconciliation of repentant humanity. And then in verse 1 of chapter 6, that's an appeal to the Corinthian church. He says, don't receive the grace of God in vain because of all this. Don't do that. Now, we can, we can say it might have to do with those people who hear the good news, respond, and then wither and die because they're not planted in good, deep soil, right? You guys know that, the parable of the, of the sower. It could be that he's referencing that, receiving the grace of God in vain, and maybe it's because he doesn't want them to be backsliding, getting saved but producing no fruit, getting saved and lacking any substance to develop Christ-like character. Either way, Paul makes it clear when he quotes Isaiah 49, the Lord has responded to those seeking forgiveness, so there should be no delay in responding correctly to God's message of reconciliation in Christ. It's an urgent plea from Paul, urgent plea from his fellow gospel workers in the Corinthian church. If any of this is making sense, people, don't turn your back. If you're understanding what's being said about what really matters, don't pursue worthless things. Change it today. If you were to continue reading throughout this letter to the Corinthian church, you'd see in chapter 6, Paul continues to speak about the differences between himself and the, gospel te- and the false teachers. As well, in chapter 7, you'll see him urging that remaining minority of unrepentant, believer, or unrepentant, probably believers, in the Corinthian church to repent and to draw near to Paul and his fellow gospel workers. Now, we're at the very end today. We've covered a lot this morning, a whole history of Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church all of it to better understand gospel ministry, but really all of it to understand what matters most. As you look to this year, we need to consider what matters most. Now, I'm gonna throw on real quick here on the screen some key takeaways from the portion of scripture that we've been in. I'm not gonna walk through those. If you want, you can take a picture with your phone or you try to write some down real quick or see me later. These are just what's present in the text that we walk through, but I don't wanna get hung up on those things. Instead, I want us to to bring our minds to how Paul and the Corinthian church had a relationship together. Bring your minds to how the Corinthian church was a perpetual hot mess. And yet Paul knew what mattered most. He knew that new creations, people being renewed, people being restored, people being reconciled to God, that's what matters most. Paul gave us an example of what it looks like to minister to difficult people in difficult circumstances over a length of time. And then he ordered his life. He ordered his schedule. He ordered his plans accordingly. So with these truths in mind, let's, let's turn our attention to that idea of renewal. You thought I wasn't going to use that word really today, even though it was on the slide. It's here. You've heard a lot about Paul. What Paul was most concerned with is renewal. New creations, and he worked tirelessly to that end. So here are the main takeaways from today. Renewal matters most. Paul cautioned, he cautioned the church, don't don't let your faith be in vain. Be mindful of the Bema Seat of Christ. Be mindful that what you do subsequent to salvation matters. Take his concern for the church seriously. Make sure that you are not one who receives the grace of God in vain that you do pursue what matters most in all that you do. I'm going to give a secondary encouragement here. In structuring your life around what matters most, it doesn't mean that you don't enjoy things in this life. It doesn't mean that you don't pursue any sense of enjoyment that you become some ascetic monk who just beats yourself. That's not what Paul's promoting here. 
But in all things, in everything that you do, you should be mindful of the eternal nature of things. Don't do things without that mind. Don't just say, oh, it just doesn't matter. No, be somewhat mindful. Even if eating a dessert doesn't matter, just at least know that it's a gift. <laughs> at least know that you didn't earn that. You don't deserve it. Like, know that. Not that you need to try to pay that dessert forward. So when you order your life and you order your schedule, you order your availability around the work of renewal for yourself and for others, be sure that that's in everything that you do. It's not that you do this instead of everything else. It's that everything that you do should involve this, I, this, real, this real basic concept of pursuing the renewal of Christ in the lives of those around you. Now that last part there, and seeking to gospelize everyone in your sphere, it's just using that word from Spurgeon, using the word gospelize. It's not just evangelism. It's not just bringing the good news to bear, and it's not just discipleship and teaching them to obey. It's helping a person, whether they're close to the Lord, far from the Lord, anywhere in between, it's helping them to live out a faithful life to the Lord, to put belief into action. It's a terrible thing when believers have convictions and they have these thoughts and they don't live them out. They affirm really good doctrine, but their life doesn't look any different. That's a terrible thing. It is also terrible when you have unbelievers be so stubborn in their unbelieving ways that they refuse to see, any, to see anything different. But isn't that God's sovereignty? We talked about the veil a whole bunch. So I think it's far worse to be a believer who has conviction, doesn't live it out, than to be an unbeliever who has a horrible conviction, but at least lives it out. It's the whole lukewarm principle some of you are familiar with. All that to say, you look to this new year. You look to what you're ordering your life around, the plans you want to make. Don't cancel them just because you heard a sermon on renewal and what really matters. No, my challenge to you is think about how what you endeavor to do can be infused with a focus on what really matters. Job, career, family, fun stuff, personal enrichment, all those things. How can they be infused with what really matters? Let's pray.